1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Hello and welcome to the new podcast from PR Week, Beyond the Noise. My name is Frankie Oliver, founder of New Society, and today I'm joined by PR Week editor-in-chief danny rogers hi frankie and pr week's uk editor john harrington hi frankie so before we start we just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone that's listened to our first podcast we've had a really fantastic response from many in the industry which is really greatly appreciated please do keep your comments and suggestions coming in so this week we are going to talk about two big stories Firstly, the research revealed by Edelman at Davos on Monday that revealed that most consumers, or as I like to call them citizens, expect business to take a stronger position on geopolitical issues. And secondly, news from the Works Annual Salary Survey that showed salary increases across the board in the industry, especially in agencies, but also revealed the frankly shocking news that women in agencies received much smaller bonuses than men. And we also have an exciting new segment to reveal for the show. Yes, it's the PR week top or flop, where we give our view on who's handled their communication strategy well in the last two weeks and who conversely has totally screwed up and should be consigned to the Gerald Ratner Hall of Shame. We'll be revealing the winner and loser at the end of the show. So let's kick off with our lead story this week edelman's research um, released at davos that nearly 60 percent of people believe ceos and business should take a strong position on geopolitical issues this is especially pertinent today um, as it's the three-month anniversary since russia's invasion of ukraine so danny you wrote about this story this week can you tell us more and also what did you think of it
1: So this is a special edition of Edelman's famous trust barometer that they've done for Davos, where Richard Edelman has been speaking this week. Uh, It talks about trust in business in terms of how business reacts to geopolitical issues. And of course, Ukraine being the biggest geopolitical issue around at the moment. So the research shows a majority of consumers, 59% of 14,000 respondents, now view geopolitics as a top priority for business. So this is a new issue for businesses. You know, they've been asked to take a lead on climate change, on governance, on, on social issues. Now they're expected to take a view on... On war, and it's a real big challenge for UK PLC.
2: So, John, I mean, to Danny's point, which brands and which you know, which businesses do you think actually you know responded well on on the back of the Ukraine invasion?
0: Well, I was looking at this, and it's it's. It's difficult to use the term well in these um, in these circumstances, obviously, because all of these businesses have often quite different but very um, big challenges. But looking back on it, in hindsight, I was fairly impressed with Procter & Gamble. I think they were reasonably quick to come out, given the complexity of a business like that. Um, there was an open letter that I I looked up again this week from uh, the present CEO, John Muller, published on uh, 7th of March. It kind of talks about how the firm has been assisting with staff and the humanitarian efforts in Ukraine, which is a good way to talk about it, and also with an eye on the phenomenally big internal comms challenges that would um, be associated with this. On Russia, he said, all capital investment, media, and advertising were being suspended, and it was reducing its product lines to focus on what he called the basic health, hygiene, and personal care items needed by the many Russian families who depend on them in their daily lives. It's an important point here because for some companies, there's a difficult balance between exiting Russia to show their opposition to the invasion and not doing things that cause unnecessary suffering to ordinary Russian people.
2: So, John, do you think FMCG companies like Procter & Gamble therefore needed to carefully consider how they were using the withdrawal of their products in Russia as a political weapon, potentially?
0: Yes. I mean... The fact is, there's a huge amount of pressure to show um, particularly uh, the Western audiences, governments, consumers, um, that they're taking these issues seriously and they're not profiteering out of having um, an operation in Russia. But at the same time, you don't want to do things that are going to cause, as I said, unnecessary suffering to ordinary Russian people, many of whom may be completely opposed to the war. So that is a really... Difficult balance, I think. And then you've also got various incredibly complicated supply chain legal issues and and so on that would also have to be taken into account at this point. So I think the idea that if you're a Procter & Gamble or Unilever, you can just say, right, you know, on Monday we operate in Russia, on Tuesday, nothing in Russia. It's just completely um, impractical.
2: Do you think the withdrawal of Western brands was a way of delivering a message to the Russian people?
0: Yes, definitely. I think given there are so many popular Western brands in Russia, as there are in almost every country in the world, um, particularly since the the, uh, last couple of decades and since obviously the fall of the Soviet Union, um, these have been hugely valued commodities um, in Russia as much as they are elsewhere. So there's probably a sense of being frozen out of the international community. So I think it sends an important message.
2: So, Danny, who do you think lagged behind in terms of the global response to um, the Ukraine invasion and why? It's
1: a difficult one because companies had to act quite quickly on these big geopolitical issues. I do remember McDonald's had a lot of media pressure for being slow to pull out of Russia. In the end, they reacted slower than, say, Coca-Cola did. But what's interesting about McDonald's, they have now acted quite strongly. In fact, they've even sold off their entire Russian operation, which they announced last week. So the pressure told sooner or later. Also, Marks & Spencers in the UK got a lot of flack uh, for its slow response. I suppose it's difficult for retailers to act as quickly as some other companies.
2: Especially when they have a franchise model. And I think that was the issue for Marks & Spencers. It's just extracting yourself contractually is therefore difficult.
1: It's a big issue for staff as well. I think when McDonald's were slow, they said our obligations are to look after our thousands of employees in Russia. And it looks like you're hanging them out to dry if you simply pull out immediately. Another organization that has acted on Ukraine, of course, is the Wimbledon Championships. It said that it's going to ban all Russian and Belarusian players from attending this year. And there's actually been a big backlash against this with the ATP and the WTA pulling all points from the competition. So it shows these decisions are tough and they can go either way. Interestingly, the trust barometer doesn't only talk about geopolitics, it also talks about chief executives needing to step up on all sorts of societal issues, including the climate crisis, something presumably, Frankie, you've got strong views on.
2: Yes, Danny, I really do. Governments around the world are failing to deliver on their public engagement promises that were made at Rio, Paris and Glasgow Cops. Many are failing to accelerate the strident policies that we need to ensure the fast transition to renewable energy. So the expectation, especially post-COP26, is that CEOs in the private sector simply have to step up and fill that gap.
1: I agree, Frankie. And of course, it's a case of whether business or the government lead on these issues.
2: Such an important point. We saw a really strong response from government, which business then followed. So real leadership was shown. On climate, we're seeing neither leadership from government or business, which is obviously a big concern. So on to our second story of the day, the Works Annual Salary Survey. John, what were the top line findings?
0: Well The survey found salaries on average rose twice as fast in agencies as they did in-house in 2021. Most in-house comms professionals took home up to 5% more last year, whereas those agencies typically received pay rises of up to 10%. Some of the other major findings include that uh, comms professionals are six times more likely to want to join an in-house team than move to an agency in their next move, And as you alluded to earlier, Frankie, um, women are getting a raw deal when it comes to bonuses. Though women working in agencies receive bonuses of up to 35%, their male counterparts are getting bonuses of 100% or more.
2: So what's your view? I mean, last week we were talking about the top 150. There was a growth of 20% across agencies last year, which was, you know, phenomenal growth. You would expect salaries, therefore, to increase in line with that growth, no?
1: Yes. But what's interesting is that agency salaries have risen by so much more than in-house salaries. I suspect agencies have underpaid their staff for the last 10, 15 years and are now having to catch up with in-house salaries.
2: I wonder how many people in the PR industry will be quoting you back in their salary reviews. That's really interesting. I've not heard that before.
1: I take that view because the starting salary for account executives has probably hardly changed in the last 10 or 15 years. It's been about early 20,000s or so.
2: Such a good point, Danny. Looking at the work's Um, salary survey I think there were really big jumps on account execs and senior account execs having been through a couple of recessions myself within the industry it is extraordinary how we do the same thing every time which is to not hire our junior people then have to double you know hire them at double double the speed and then have to up their salary so in the long term it's probably good for the young people in our industry but not without its pain.
1: I agree. And there's a real talent crisis at the moment, as, as you, you know. It's very difficult to find young, talented people for your business. And we've got a big problem on our hands. I think responsible
0: employers will be looking very, very carefully at this. They'll be looking at salaries and other types of bonus schemes or um, equity schemes in order to keep the best staff. And actually, we'll be announcing the winners of our Best Places to Work Awards today. Uh, when you hear this, hopefully on Thursday. So it's definitely worth checking out those winners, reading their profiles and learning from the best.
2: So the survey also revealed the frankly shocking news really that women in agencies were typically getting 8% of their salary as a bonus versus 23% for men. Obviously, it's the sort of statistic that makes me quite cross. I spoke to Anna Geffert, the president of Women in PR, about this story. And we both agree that it's hard to see whether there's any differences in the data between um, different paying industries, for example, such as consumer, tech, healthcare and financial, where remuneration may have some anomalies However, we both did agree, given the weight of research um, that exists post-pandemic, women were absolutely shown to carry the weight of homeschooling and the domestic responsibilities during lockdown. And we both felt that this has no doubt had an impact on women's perceived value to a business and especially to a PR agency post-pandemic. Perhaps I mean, these agency heads thought, oh, well, we've given those women flexibility. They should be grateful um, and that therefore we don't have to give them a good bonus on the back of it. I know that sounds harsh, but potentially that is some of the thinking that can operate inside some businesses. And the reason for that is simply because the men were potentially able to be more visible.
1: I think that's a fair point, Frankie. Um, Possibly speculation, possibly some truth in it. But uh, if so, it's, uh, it's a sad indictment on this industry.
2: So, John, what does the PR Week Top 150 tell us about this issue?
0: For the past few years, PR Week's been asking agencies as part of the Top 150 to give data on the gender split, both at board level and across overall workforces. What we found last year was that boards on average were 52.5% female, if that makes sense. That was up from 50.7% at 2020. So there is a majority female, albeit slight majority female. Across the wider workforce, women accounted for 62.7% of staff. Interestingly, this was slightly smaller than the proportion in 2020 when it was 64%. This is a small difference and it may just be a statistical anomaly. But I do wonder if this is maybe reflecting some of what you're saying that some women a small number are exiting the industry because it's not something that i've seen for a while
2: well the national research shows that there are fewer women now in the workforce than there were pre-pandemic so potentially yes and so to this week's exciting news segment the pr week beyond the noise top or flop So, John, over to you. Please, will you reveal who we've collectively decided is the best communicator?
0: Well, Frankie, we've chosen Jake Daniels for the past week, past two weeks or so. Um, For those who don't know, he's the 17-year-old Blackpool footballer who last week revealed that he was gay. This received a huge amount of publicity, um, given the fact that, unfortunately, how rare it is, uh, for a male footballer in the UK to come out. Um, Justin Fashion, was um, famously the last player who was currently playing to do so, and this was way back in 1990. We were very impressed with the way the comms had been handled here. Jake made a very moving and defined interview um, with Sky Sports. It's very personal, actually. He was discussing how he felt about being gay uh, in what is still a very macho environment. And he also discussed his relief at having... Um, told the world that he was and this revelation led to a lot of support from Blackpool from his club and for actually the wider football community what the long-term impacts will be on making men's football in particular more open to LGBT players and fans we don't know and really it's unfair to put this pressure on one player who is after all still a teenager but I do think from an outsider's perspective that it's a step toward normalising LGBT people in the sport generally.
2: Thank you, John. So Danny, will you please reveal who you think has handled their communications the worst in the last two weeks?
1: I think the HSBC Stuart Kirk incident is the worst piece of communication since we were last on air. Stuart Kirk, as you may know, is the head of responsible investing at HSBC. And he made a very ill-advised speech to a an, a Financial Times conference in which he said that climate risk was overrated as a risk for investors. And he said, it's okay if Miami's five meters underwater. It's Pretty unbelievable that a major UK bank, I think the biggest UK bank, could have a senior executive who downplays climate change to this extent. And I'm pretty sure it's off message from the organisation's narrative.
2: Well, Danny, he said that climate change was basically not a financial risk, which was extraordinary. And even though he said he believed in the science, it sounded like he really didn't believe in the science, which again was extraordinary. How on earth did it happen? How did he end up on that stage with that presentation at that calibre of conference and deliver quite that speech?
1: It's pretty incredible. I understand that HSBC has now suspended Mr. Kirk from his job while they investigate how this happened. It appears that HSBC had approved the conference script before he went on stage, but it's certainly not in line with HSBC BC's ESG strategy, as they would like to call it.
2: An HSBC CEO and many other colleagues came out on LinkedIn really quickly, I believe, you really saying that they didn't stand by the comments that were made by Stuart.
1: The chief exec of HSBC said he didn't agree at all with what Mr. Kirk had said. It's pretty amazing, though, that somebody with the title head of responsible investments can hold such a view. And it it makes you wonder about the culture in HSBC and in banking in general.
2: I agree, Danny. It can't be the first time he said it. So was this the moment that he said it publicly and was therefore held to account? You have to question, had that conference not gone ahead, he'd probably still have his position. Thank you so much, Danny and John, for reporting back on this week's Top or Flop. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Don't forget to check out the Best Places to Work Awards and the 30 Under 30 revealed this week in PR Week. And many congratulations to the winners of the PR Week Global Awards last week.
1: And also many thanks to everyone who made PR 360, our biggest conference in Brighton last week, a success. Thanks to all the delegates and all the great speakers.
2: So thank you again for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time.